Peter Florence is the founder, along with his parents, of the Hay Festival, funding the first with winnings from a poker game. Is that true? Well, it's true enough. It seems to be the, the foundation myth that's kind of stuck in <laughs> to most people. There's another version of it which, you know, my mum bailed me out and tried to keep it going because she was my mum. Both of these things are kind of true. Um, but one of them just sounds a lot better in the media. Sure does, yeah. So who was in the poker game? Oh, a bunch of guys who were kind enough to let me win enough to keep, you know, the wolf from the door for a bit. And, you know, the, the relevance of it, I guess, is that it's a sort of beautiful metaphor for festival running, because nobody in their right minds would go into this with any kind of coherent confidence of success. It's a huge risk. It's a huge gamble every time you do it. You're staking, you know, a year's work on a few days every year. And the element of chance is high and the element of adrenaline fuel delight is quite high too. You know, that sounds exactly like publishing itself. They're very similar, although, you know, the, the extraordinary thing about a literary festival book festival or what the kind of thing we do is that it takes a shared passion for something that is profoundly private and personal the act of reading it's a it's a solo it's an individualized communion with a story and a, and a writer and it makes it very public and if you go to an opera festival you see opera if you go to a rock festival you see rock and roll music if you go to a festival like hay what you get is sometimes the art form if it's a spoken word thing or if you're looking at a particularly beautifully uh, calligraphed um you know, piece of writing but mostly it's a secondary thing it's the talk around it's the it's like the second dvd in the box set if dvd's mm. not too old-fashioned think about yeah it's the interesting contextual stuff that gives you a deeper understanding and appreciation of the art and it also has the great advantage of dealing with a form which has been four five six hundred years the way in which we recorded everything we knew mm. it's not just literature it's books books have all our science all our theology all our pleasure, all our eroticism, all our knowledge. You know, Peter, Peter, not, not all of it. I mean, there's the physical side as well. <laughs> well, it's, it's, how it, it's how it's been recorded. It's how it's been told. True sure enough. And the way we tell these things has been through books. So, you know, our subject matter is literally infinite. Yes. So, in that way, uh, the festivals are a sort of engagement with everything and most of all an engagement with the way we tell everything, with the way we tell stories and language being such a rich and um, plural, multiple, massively diversified issue around the world. You and I you know, have the great advantage of speaking this Anglophone vocabulary, these grammars, these extraordinary imperial, post-imperial histories in, in what I would call English, and I'm not quite sure what you would 
define your language as, but probably not English necessarily. But every other culture in the world has its own Dickenses, its own Jane Austens, its own Margaret Atwoods and Roberts and Davids. And the discovery of all those voices internationally has been the great adventure that we've been on for the last 35 years. Mm, yeah. Finding a whole language is like Malayalam. When we went to Kerala, we had a festival in um, Trivandrum for a couple of years. And there are, I don't know, 28 million people who speak a language which is as full and rich of literature as English or Spanish or, or Mandarin. And they're simply profoundly local literary artists. You know, we are as familiar with Macondo in Colombia as we are with Middlemarch in Britain or any of these beautiful intimately, minutely described places, which are, of course, through their specificity, absolutely universal. That's very poetic, but authors want to sell books. That's one of the reasons they come to festivals. The other is they want to connect with their readers, right? Those are both things that are, I would say, strong stimuli for writers to come to festivals, but there are there are more. I think if you are someone who spends your working life uh, at a desk, in a room, or in a library, uh, you relish and treasure the opportunity to hang out with your peers and your colleagues. Yeah. So meeting each other, actually, is often as much a, a pleasure as meeting the readers. Um, you also have the energy of discovering stories, sharing stories with people in a very intense way. Festivals are you know, incredibly concentrated. They bring everything together for short, intense periods. And that's both A, very romantic, and B, very mm -hmm. creative. You get all stories playing around each other and magic happens. And the number of times I've met writers who've you know, had an idea that sparked or somehow just, there was some kind of catalyst or when they were in a context of other stories, and it just worked for them. So there are those big things, I think, as well. And there are ways in which the comings together at festivals are just different from maybe going to a reading in a bookshop where you're going to a passionate crowd of 100 people who have come because they're book lovers. At festivals, you get people who are coming for all sorts of other reasons. And it's a more, it's a wider crowd. It's not so homogenous. And, you know, you're not always preaching to the so there's a bigger conversation with the public that goes on. And the one thing that's true of all festivals everywhere, from you know Sydney to Jaipur to Harbourfront to wherever, is that they are all regionally and metropolitanly specific. They all gain from that that identifiable audience. Now, what was interesting about what just happened with us when we did our digital festival was that when west, I mean not west, it just went out of the window. We have every year in, in Wales a 11-day festival which draws you know, 250,000 attendances and people come together and people around here have all their friends and family over and it is quite tribal. Plus you got all those great bookstores. We've got the highest concentration of 
bookstores per capita anywhere in the world. There are 28 bookshops in Hay and Wai, town yeah. of 1,500 people. And you you live near and, there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a concept of greater, <laughs> greater Hay, which sort of embraces all that the, the the agricultural land around it, and it's a it's a border town. It sits just in Wales, but the developments have been such that because it's at the end of England. The English side of the border is built up, so it's literally a border town. Okay. And there's something magical. It's both a frontier and a free port. Okay, oh, Peter, Peter, uh, just let me finish my introduction, okay? Then we'll get into it. Oh, sorry. Yeah, not a problem. Here we go. So you were educated at Ipswich School, Jesus College, Cambridge, and the University of Paris, and have an MA in Modern and Medieval Literatures, in addition to a slew of honorary doctorates. As well as Hay in Wales, you have founded similar festivals in Mantua, Segovia, the Alhambra Palace, Cartagena, Nairobi, and numerous other unpronounceable destinations. For me, anyway. You are the co-editor of Oxtails anthologies in partnership with Profile Books and Oxfam. And you've written for The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Spectator, among other publications. And you were awarded a CBE in 2018 for services to literature and charity. Welcome to the Bibliophile. It's very, very sweet of you to have me and I find a lot of that completely unrecognizable. <laughs> well, what was it like to get a CBE? Um, very sweet. You know, honorary things are much easier to get than real things. And, you know, you're always, when you're awarded something, being singled out for something that's a massive group effort. So thousands of people make the Hay Festivals around the world. My colleague, Christina Fuentes, who's our international director, is uh, the founding and driving force behind a lot of that international development and all the stuff in Latin America. Literally thousands of people make these festivals and the, the coalition building of them is the really interesting part actually because you have to bring people from all sorts of sectors, from governmental, commercial, cultural, social, and you're trying to put something together which has an impact in a society. And I don't just mean economic impact, I mean how are you going to affect the way people think about things, how are you, what are you going to contribute to any given place that you set up. That's one of the most impressive things though, is the fact that you launched this very, very successful, wonderful festival in Hay, and then you replicated it around the world. No wonder they gave you a CBE. back to that point I was making just now about discovering all these other literatures and there is a tendency because we have such this rich fabulous English language vehicle to not engage nearly as much with the other literatures in the world as uh, and we should be doing that yeah I mean it's never been more important to try and be global to try and understand other people to try and reach out and, and get other people's cultures and literature is just such a great way to do that because it comes sort of unfiltered. There, there isn't like there is with a TV show, a kind of you know a multi-million dollar budget and thousands of boxes to tick. There's a, a somebody in a room writing a story and then they give it to a publisher and they publish it. I mean, it's it, it's unfiltered truth in that sense. So you know there are 
huge advantages to the English language. And one of them also is that it's a very good language for translating other languages into. I mean, yeah, you, people have argued persuasively that some of the Romance languages don't go into English as well as, say, Russian or German do. But I find that actually the art of translation has suddenly taken off in, in, in the English yeah. sphere. Look at Tafaranti. Yeah. You know, we, we have got much better at trying to absorb other, other languages. It sounds to me like you're you really are trying to reach out to different uh, cultures and in doing this. Is that right? Yeah, I mean we we're just putting to bed the um, the programs for Mexico and Peru this year, which are eighty five ninety percent Hispanic. The program for Segovia, which has just been announced, which runs in mid September, is almost completely Hispanic. Uh, there's some French in there, a little bit of Portuguese. So we're very used to working in languages and working with translation. We had a, an amazing event in our festival in Abu Dhabi in February where the speaker, Shirin Abadi, a human rights lawyer, Nobel laureate, was speaking from London in Farsi and was being translated into both English and Arabic for an audience both global and online, and also in a room in the United Arab Emirates. And suddenly you realize that this is actually completely normal everywhere else in the world. They're, we are used to translation, the idea that languages could be different and, and beautifully enriched. What was the most important thing that you learned from Hay that you then were able to use in replicating it around the world? Um, pleasure. Pleasure in language and story and pleasure in what I think we can probably easily just call not so much education but knowledge. People love knowing things. Yes. And they love finding things out. And if you make it academic, you put it in a different context. But if you make it entertaining and joyful and celebratory, then... I think some of that knowledge sticks. So, I mean, there's a reason that festivals around the world, in, in their original context, were religious. Mm. They were about celebrating some blessing or other. And I think what cultural festivals do is give a secular twist to that and say, we're celebrating human potential, human capability. We're celebrating the arts of dancing or singing or playing music or telling stories and it wasn't immediately the case when we started out 35 years ago that literature festivals would work i mean theater is a sort of festival of literature it's a public celebration of so peter were you the first modern literary festival or not oh um I, I think we came, we grew out of the grand old daddy of all British festivals in Cheltenham, which has been going for 75 years, I think. That. We're very much Johnny-come-latelys, but we managed to luck into a golden age of writers, which carried the idea of festivals way beyond where we thought they might be. What, the popularity of them with the general public? That's... That's what it is? 
the golden partly age? popularity with the general public, partly that in a world which is largely mediated by either journalists or politicians, the idea that storytellers should have a voice and had a way of connecting with people also resonated. And there was a platform that storytellers could have that wasn't necessarily part of the media, but was their own platform. Mm -hmm. I think that's partly why festivals take off. Also, there's a very strong tradition of talk radio in the UK, which preps people for this. And along came this wonderful, wonderful group of writers who were also great talkers. You know, one of the things that I found is that you, if you talk to a politician, you spend a good amount of your time just trying to go through the bullshit and get to the truth, whereas authors, they tell you the truth. That's what their objective is. They tell you their truth, and you can or cannot recognize them. And they don't pretend that they've got an objective truth. Um, no, of course not. Which, as you say, bullshit. And they're not trying to sell you something. They're just trying to connect to you in the most human possible way to say, here is a life. Um, I find there are aspects of this life that I'm telling you that are true. So yes, that's the, that's the great, the great, it's not a trick, but the great achievement of fiction more than any other art form is to allow you to understand the world from somebody else's point of view. So the whole thing is like a massive exercise in empathy. Mm. And I think that's why people love writers, because they treasure things that they know about themselves that other people have recognized. And I think that's, um, that's a big deal. And you've given the, them a, a venue to connect with readers and, and cultivate this, all of this. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're a platform and a party. Yeah. You know, when we when we started this out, my my father was very keen to hear from poets and philosophers, and I was, you know, in a slightly starry-eyed teenage way, very keen to meet heroes. And my mum, you know, smiled and said, "Yeah, but it's got to be fun." And the element of festivals being a party has been absolutely essential to the whole project from the get-go. And my experience of writers all around the world is that they are, by and large, among the most generous, thoughtful, and seriously party animal people <laughs> that you could ever have. <laughs> right. Okay, so what's the serious party animal then? What, what's that? Yeah, I think it's back to that, you know, you've been, you're at your desk for nine months writing, and then you get let out, and right. you unleash it, and okay. you want to have a good time. You know, there's not, if you are, if you want a, a lock-in with some storytellers, writers are the people you want to be, you know, up all night listening to stories with. Yeah, well, yeah, they've got them, haven't they? They really have got them, and they know how to tell them. Yeah. Yeah, 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 they really do. Okay, one of the reasons that I, I was so happy to connect with you and to, to have you on the, on the program is that I attended the online version the COVID version, and for some of the sessions that I participated in, there were more than 10,000 viewers. So my question is, first of all, what was the total number for the festival, and how do you plan to capitalize on this huge interest? Um, 
I think we had 550,000 registrations for the festival, and they were from 180 different countries, which is mind-boggling. Wow. You know, that's more than take part in the World Cup at yeah. any level. I mean, it's, just, it's sort of extraordinary. And also utterly wonderful. We had so many learnings. It wasn't a learning curve, it was a learning vertical. I mean, just from the moment we had to cancel. And we had to cancel in March on the day that we would have been launching the program. And we'd committed vast amounts of money and time and effort into a 700-event program and huge infrastructural costs. You know, we'd bought all the hoodies that we were going to sell, for God's sake. And so we were very, it was maximum exposure time. And then we lost 70% of our income, which comes from ticket and book sales. So uh, we had to then pivot very quickly and, and create something that would be digitally viable. And we had the great advantage of not having a clue what we were doing. And when you have no clue and you're running on adrenaline and creativity, actually, it's quite a sexy, exciting place to be. And you think that treble speed and stuff happens. And I realized stuff happens is a gloriously inadequate <laughs> explanation of what we actually did. But uh, connections just started tripping and it was thrilling and we learned that there is a significant difference between streaming a live event where you're talking to 1700 people in a, in a tent in Hay on Y and you you know you put it on the internet and it's a bit like watching football there's a difference between that and the intimacy of yeah. being able to see into somebody's room feeling that they're not broadcasting to an audience, but they're talking directly to you. It's like a FaceTime conversation that we're, we're having now. That's a different experience. And in many ways, because it was so unusual, I think we benefited from the novelty of it. And, you know, I've spent much of the last month talking to literally hundreds of literature festivals around the world about our experience and how it might be adapted to what they're doing. And we look at it now and think, it was specific to the lockdown period when the whole world was locked down. But there were, I don't know, over 150,000 people who had never been to Hay before, who have told us in no uncertain terms that they really enjoyed the experience and they'd like to see more. So we're currently wrangling lots of options about how often we do it, how we do it, and what the relationship between the, the in real life face-to-face, um, -face, around the table experience might be. And what I kind of think we've learned is that they are two different things. I don't think we want hybridity. I think we want both things separately. So there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be real time then? They wouldn't be at the same time then? Is that what you're thinking? Well, I don't know. It's, it's conceivable that what, what we might do is have uh, a digital festival that runs at, at you know, seasonal times throughout the year. Yeah. It might be that um, we use some of the people who are in real time to do specific things that are designed for this medium. And yeah, I mean, 10,000 people sounds like a lot for a, a digital gig. And we had you know 25,000 people watching some of these events. And yet, if you're Stephen Fry, 25,000 people on screen is the smallest number of people you've ever broadcast to. Right. Millions. So we, there's a there's a reality check of yeah. what it is we're doing, and there are 
you know, big questions about if we're doing this online, are people buying the books? That was a question I had. Is uh, compared to 2019, how many book sales were you able to uh, speak for in 2020? Like, were there more books sold this year, or fewer, or the same, or do you have any idea? The answer is, we're not entirely sure, but we know several things. We know that publishers and booksellers were uniquely disadvantaged this year in just not being able to get stock, because they're stuck in warehouses in China, because they're, they've furloughed warehouse stock for whatever reason. So, the direct comparisons aren't quite there. But what we do know from reading the chat lines is that a lot of people were saying, we love this and we're going to go to our local bookshop and pick up the book. And I know from a whole number of local independent booksellers all around the world that their customers watched this stuff online from Hay and then went into a bookshop in Delhi or Auckland or Nova Scotia for all I know and picked up a copy of the book. Now, that's a hell of a thing, because whilst I know that um, not everybody has access to a beautiful, quirky, independent bookshop, having access to a bookshop at all is unusual for many, many parts of the world. You do have the same relationship with a bookseller as you do with a writer. It's a, it's a curiously intimate personal relationship where somebody knows stuff about you because they know what you buy and that's not some slick algorithm which says if you bought three thrillers here's the next thriller that's like the other three thrillers you bought this is almost like a, a prescription from a therapist that yeah. the way in which booksellers traditionally have cultivated relationships with their clients is very much the same way that great librarians operate they mm help you find things you didn't necessarily know. Okay, I've, I've got an idea for you. I'm sure it's not terribly original, but it seems to me that if you put one of these online things on, and you, basically the only cost is for the a viewer or attendee or participant to buy a copy of one of the books of one of the authors through your site to attend the event, that way they get something for it, plus you keep the publishers happy. Have you thought about that? Uh, we've, we've thought about all sorts of ways of, of trying to make it financially sustainable. And uh, I love the idea that people will buy the books from us. It would be great. But equally, we can't service customers in Canada very easily. Not nearly as easily as your local bookstore can. Yeah although we can sell them digital copies of books, but actually, you know, the thing about technology for books is that it turns out after 500-odd years that two-dimensional black print on white paper is still the best technology for reading. Totally. I try reading an e-book, and I, I tried reading The Heart of Darkness a couple of weeks ago, and it's discombobulating when you read it in a book but try it on an e-book for me anyway anyway that's that's another story <laughs> well, yeah, it, it is. Well, they, there are things every revolution in technology from yeah, stone carving to papyrus to bound paper to scribes to caxton and 
Gutenberg has generated some kind of appropriate revolution in creativity. You know, the novel becomes possible when it becomes possible to print out 400 pages. The narrative form that is most suited to tablets is gaming. And that's where the creativity has gone so far. Similarly, you know, literary poems and the haikus are hugely successful on mobile phone technology. But, is it that, but the mobile technology thing is interesting as well, because what we discovered when we were doing our digital festival, having been told for years that all new technology is going to be mobile, it's all about the thing in your palm, well, mm. actually, no. Most people, a vast majority of people who have responded to the question, you know, what were you watching this on, say, their laptops. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, if you're going to contribute, participate in a chat line, and you're going to ask your Q&A questions, you don't want to be doing that with your thumb whilst trying to watch a two-inch by two-inch screen. Yeah. So even that became a, a surprise. And if you're using your laptop, then actually there are all sorts of other things you can be doing at the same time. So we were constantly amazed by the way in which people responded. They loved, and we looked at the media coverage of the festival, and every single headline, and certainly... I said, not, not every single headline, but almost all headlines, and certainly every single first paragraph stroke sentence said, online for free. And yes. the idea that yeah. we were completely democratizing this, saying this is available to absolutely anyone. Yeah. You don't have to be able to you know, afford $10 for a ticket or be able to travel to mid Wales and pay for camping and food. And anyone... Can come. Yeah, that was great. It's such a great, great part of what this was. Yes. And I think the, the way in which the writers responded to that was phenomenal. The way the audiences were also able to invite their mates whom they talked about the festival to for years. You know, the number of times I heard people saying, you know, I've always told my cousins in Pick a Country about hey, and this time I got to sit down and we watch together. Uh, happened again and again. And that shared experience, which I've always thought was about hugging and breaking bread and hanging out after the gigs, also happened digitally. So there were little breakout rooms and people would tell us stories about, you know, finally getting to show this to their friends. So hmm. there were all sorts of bizarre learnings and the global nature of it was the strangest. So what, uh, what are you going to be able to put into practice? Have you, have you gotten to that point yet? That something that's, that's going to help you survive and thrive that you've, you've learned from this experience? We're working on it. <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> okay. I mean, what, we, what we do know, actually, is that a digital festival of this reach and scope has sponsorship potential that the real life festival doesn't. Yes. Both in terms of you know people who want to be involved and and the scale in which they want to be involved. Um, so what you've been able to talk that we can make it always free to the public, then okay. terrific. Yeah. Found that people who were donating were donating very considerable sums of money. I mean, I, I was thinking maybe we get you know five ten bucks from people. The people who did donate were donating, you know, a hundred, two hundred and fifty dollars hmm. in sort of gratitude for 
the experience and because they believed the experience should be freely available to people who couldn't afford to enter the deals. The, the sheer benevolence of that mindset is so heartwarming, is so yeah. encouraging and reassuring yeah. that you begin to you know, have faith in all sorts of things that you had no idea of. What you're telling me is that the, the benefit may manifest itself in sponsorship revenue because you can put bigger numbers in front of sponsors? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of it. But equally, you know, we have a very strong schools program and being able to reach many, many, many more children. And this is part of, you know, there are parents who've got kids at home because they're in lockdown. They want to know what they're going to be able to offer them in terms of content and getting their schools to recommend this stuff is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. So now we come to one of the other great joys of you know, the lucky happenstance that we're doing this now in this over the last 35 years. There has been globally, but particularly in the English language, this just unprecedentedly golden age of children's writers. You know, the mm. YA young adult market was invented about 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and has boomed, primed by people who were writing, you know, people like J.K. Rowling and Philip Pullman and Cressida Cowell and Michelle Paver, who were bringing kids up as readers. And, you know, the reason that 16 year olds weren't reading was that nobody was writing about 16 year olds. And now they are. And hey, guess what? Yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a really extraordinary boom in children's writing and writing for young people that we've just danced alongside of and cheered and celebrated and we've watched these these people become global superstars so what's your point my point is that there are new generations of readers who are staying with literature through yeah. their teens and 20s and I think there was always a drop-off from, you know, kids that hit puberty and then maybe move into music or film or, and not play with books, and now they are doing. So that also just increases the, the, the global audience and the generational audience. And you also find that, and I, I venture this as, as a, an idea that maybe needs a bit more testing, but... A lot of the time, these writers become the kind of social, I hesitate to use the word priests, but, you know, people don't go to Sunday school anymore. Where are you going to get your moral framework? Mm -hmm. I think you get it from stories. Traditionally, that's how myths came up. That's how culture has always developed. And I think there is a, a generation of young people who have grown up with amazing, amazing storytellers who've given them new new insights into the world and that's how environmental awareness is so rich it's how you know teenagers are so much cooler with all sorts of gender issues and sexuality yeah. than maybe other parents were because they've had great writers who've been just helping navigate through these things and saying don't be frightened of them don't regard difference as as an impossible barrier to understanding, just recognize it as difference. Whoop de doodle. Yeah, we, let's not get into J.K. Rowling and trans uh, the trans debate. But now I've got a question about 
what makes for a really good session. I particularly loved Jonathan Bates' session, this this recent one, uh, online. And I was just trying to figure out why. I I think it was because it was chock full of information I wasn't aware of. That was a big part of it. But I wonder, how would you define a great real session? Like what, what's required for that? And a great online session? A lot of it's very similar, but that you should choose Jonathan Bate is, is a perfect indication of what, of what I was talking about with knowledge a while ago is if you start with somebody who simply knows more about a subject than anybody else, you've got an even chance that they're going to be fascinating when they talk about it. Yeah. And Jonathan is one of the great scholars. He's also dealing with, you know, in this sense, Wordsworth, a subject who is so of our time. The idea yeah. that we need to engage with nature, the idea that we need to be radical and daring. I mean, just it is always Wordsworth's time, but never more so. Yeah. So, a willingness to share that knowledge, a an understanding that Jonathan has as a great teacher of how to structure an hour um, around engagement, education, fascination, entertainment, sheer uh, the wonder of the story you're telling. I mean, that's pretty special. But uh, Jonathan was pretty much, as it were, solo lecturer. Yeah. Most of the events that we our interviews because we found that dialogue has often been our preferred format and I think that the things that work are an interviewer who is humble enough to shut the fuck up and listen and then (laughs) ask the next appropriate question (laughs) it's a conversation right You've got somebody who keeps saying, "Well, my take on this." Shut up. Yeah, you're here for the, you're here for the author. Yeah, and you have to know enough about the author to know which stories they tell best, what questions they've never answered before, what they answer really well, where they you know you need to you need to be really gender. Yeah. And you need to listen and you need to be kind. Now, I'm not saying I you know I once interviewed John Bolton, which was a very very different kind of experience. Hmm. Uh, the way you approach a writer is with admiration, consideration, and how am I going to get this person to tell the best stories? The most interesting stories. Yeah. Um, what do I need to know that will help people engage with their their writing? You also need to know that the audience want, have their own questions they want to ask, and you don't want to ask those because that's what they want to ask. So um, I think what makes for a great session is having somebody with a great story to tell and finding someone to enable them to tell it. I mean, it sounds banally simple, but actually it boils down to that, and it's a hell of a lot harder than it looks. Yeah, I think uh, as much as anything, what I look for when I'm doing interviews is a good try to get a good rapport going. Yeah. That, I mean, it, it helps beyond anything. What we, I had a long chat with my mate Willie Dalrymple the other day, who runs Jaipur Literature Festival. And they too have been doing stuff online under the Brave New World banner. And Willie's thought was that old friends who uh, know each other 
well and to understand each other's cadences and stories would work very well online. And I sort of buy that. I also think the danger with it is that old friends have shortcuts. And they might also have in-jokes too, which you don't want. Yeah, so you, you need to make sure that you assume nothing and you need to explain stuff and contextualize it. But yeah, what makes a great event is people at the end thinking, God, I want to go and now fill in the rest of the sentence, uh, read a book, have a drink, dance a jig, uh, write a letter, tell somebody about what I've done. I mean, if, if there's been some kind of call to action, if it's intellectual action or social action, then you've won. If you've helped people feel less alone, more optimistic, more consoled, because not everything is bright and jolly. You know, we've had some of the events we had about mortality and illness and medicine were, on the face of it, profoundly disturbing and troubling, but that we were being told by people who were expert about the end of life and the realities of the end of life was incredibly important and actually optimistic and humane. I mean, shared humanity just comes across and it, it, it always works. And, you know, if you can find shared humanity, then, you know, there are no problems left in the world, I jest, but only a little. Incidentally, I, I just finished interviewing and it's, I just put it up on the site. His name is Larry Grobel and he is an iconic Playboy magazine interviewer. He, he, he produced some great interviews for them with Marlon Brando and such. Anyway, he, I don't know if you've come across this book, but I think it's terrific. It's called The Art of the Interview. And he actually teaches... He, he, yeah, he teaches at UCLA, and as I say, I, it's just up on my site, the, uh, the interview I conducted with him, uh, in case you're interested. Okay, so just winding down here, more of a personal question. What gives you the most pleasure out of what you've done with this festival? I mean, it's just, I, I can't separate the bits out. But if I were to try and give you a, a reasonable answer to that question, I guess the idea that in our second year in 1989, we ran a school's under-18 poetry competition for Wales. And it was won by a 14-year-old boy um, from Abergavenny. And 30 years down the road, that boy, Owen Shears, ah, right. from <laughs> Wales, I think possibly one of Wales's greatest ever writers, right. who fills a 1,700-seater tent in Hay, who writes plays, who writes films, who writes poetry and novels and works of really impressive, really impressive political and social engagement. And, you know, he went through our high school education projects, he went through our university education projects, our master classes for young writers, and 
you know, we've sort of stood behind him cheering since he was 14 and he's now 43 or something. That kind of thrills me. It, like a publisher, in a way, you've, you've discovered talent and you've worked all the way along with them. Is that it? Oh, you know, yes, but I, we're not taking credit for it. We've just been along for the ride. Yeah. You know, this guy was a meteor at the age of 14. Uh, we've hung on to that, that star trail. But watching somebody's career develop like that, whether that is, you know, Margaret Atwood going from phenomenal to legendary, yeah. or you know, younger writers finding a voice, finding a space. There's something about the longevity of it now, which is curiously satisfying. I like long-term plans. I like the fact that you know, one's reading habits are always being expanded and, and changed and enriched. Mm -hmm. I like the idea that you've seen projects start at a supper table at a festival and 10 years, 12 years later, you go to the movies and there's that story that they were talking about. That yes, yeah. <laughs> and just the access to all these extraordinary people over the years and all the riches yeah. that they've given me is, I guess, the bit that I love most. And the idea that mm. people in in rural Wales or coastal Colombia or mm. in you know the alluvial mountains of Peru think that it's normal for Nobel Prize winners and storytellers of great renown to be in their town and that you don't have to live in New York or Paris or Shanghai to expect the best in the world. I think that's a huge thing. I think it really matters that there are different points on the globe, all of which are local communities that are tight and, and lively and who get to celebrate alongside, you know, the greatest places, uh, the greatest cities in the world. That really matters. Mm. Are you happy? Am I happy? Often. Yes, but yeah, for all the reasons that people are happy, that my children are well, that somebody bakes a beautiful loaf or tells a lovely story or plays a great riff on the guitar or, or just finds time to smile. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am blessed in so many ways that it would be, you know, graceless not to be happy a lot of the time, although I find myself more troubled by the world than I have been for all my adult life and certainly all my childhood. Um, mm. I find the resurgence of uh, nationalism and, and racial prejudice deeply disturbing. And I find the personalities of some of the world's more autocratic leaders deeply troubling and also at the same time, you know, almost comical. And then you look around at the people who are doing well, leading their countries, particularly in COVID, and A, they're all women, B, they're all... Yes, women. New yeah. Zealand, yes. <laughs> Administrate 
not doctrinaire politicos. Yes. And, you know, you can't help feeling, you know, there's some bad stuff and there's some great stuff. And let's dance for the great stuff and tell those stories and let's learn from the bad stuff. And the idea that our time is any more dramatic than anybody else's time is, is daft. You know, I had to yeah. read for this festival recently a whole bunch of great literature, including Hilary Mantel's extraordinary The Mirror and the Light and Maggie Farrell's Hamlet. And you're reminded that there's always been plague. Quite an eye-opener, isn't it? Yeah, the theatres have been closed in London often. The need to tell stories, the need to gather together and be in those stories is, is apt absolutely urgent and human although it's bloody hard right now you know the economic reality of this many many countries is deeply oppressive and alarming speaking of economics i just want to i'm almost finished here i I just want to slip in this question about finances are you finding that the big name authors are asking you for bigger fees these days, or their agents are, to show up at the at the festival because they know that their names will draw more people? My experience, I have to say, of writers is that they're all incredibly reasonable and collaborative, and they know that, you know, festivals are like the one part of the publishing process which are not commercial. You know, nobody makes money out of festivals. At least nobody I've ever met has ever made money out of festivals. Um, they're just too expensive to do. So, no, I haven't. I haven't found that. And my experience of the great writers is that they are engaged with their communication with the public, and they sometimes engage through festivals, sometimes through TV, sometimes through book tours, and they choose their own way of of meeting the public. No, I don't don't recognize that. I mean, I I do recognize that in in an entertainment world, writers and their public appearances can be a commodity. But, you know, that's how Charles Dickens made money. He he did big paid gigs. It's it's very rare that you can find people who would, A, want to, and B, you know, have the time to do that on quite the level that he did. But he was so extraordinary in so many ways that possibly he's not the best example to give. So do you pay bigger names more money or not? Um, We tend to pay everybody pretty much the same, depending on what we're asking them to do. Okay. And if we're commissioning work, then we pay whatever the going rate is to commission work. If you want to get a lecture or a new piece of writing, then we pay X dollars and why why dollars okay. but if we're asking we're helping them promote their books then it's a collaborative venture it, this i guess this might put you on the spot a bit but in the last six months can you just give us the best non-fiction and fiction books that you've that really have blown your socks off One each. Oh, for God's sake. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, okay. I would say The Mirror and the Light, because it is the concluding part of the Thomas Cromwell trilogy, which is in my mind 
honestly and without hyperbole up there with Shakespeare's history plays as a chronicle and understanding of an age that speaks with absolute contemporary relevance and also mm. writes a whole bunch of really interesting political wrongs. Um, foregrounds the women in this story. Uh, there are so many beautiful and brilliant twists to what she does in that book. Can you read that without reading the others, or do you have to read all three? I'd recommend reading all three because because they fit together. Yeah. Uh, I think I I cannot think of a single person for whom a month's reading time would not be. Uh, profitably spent reading that trilogy. They would come out of it thrilled and engaged and and uh, just enriched in all sorts of amazing ways. In terms of non-fiction, there's a really, really interesting book by a guy called Daniel Zuskind, who is uh, an economist, I think, actually, called A World Without Work, which is about the way in which, the way in which we're going to have to cope with the social effects of artificial intelligence and mechanization changing the workplace. But, and I love that book, but the non-fiction book for me of the last few years, which for interesting and complicated reasons was excluded from lots of prize lists, is a book called Underland by Robert McFarlane, mm -hmm. which is one of the most exquisite and perfect pieces of writing of any kind. And it is poetic, and it does tell stories, and it is also an act of scholarship. But it is the most profound way of re-examining and re-imagining the planet that we live on yeah. that I've ever come across. Wow. And even though it's not within the last three months, I would hand on heart say, uh, that's the book I would, you know, the non-fiction book I would give to everyone knowing that they would just be changed by it and, and, and enlivened by it. Wow, well, thank you. Just before we go, is there an answer, is there something you want to say that I haven't probed and gotten out of you? Uh, no, I feel, I feel thoroughly and gloriously overexposed. Probed? <laughs> No, I, I, I don't think there is anything. I was trying to think what I would ask myself. And, yeah. um, I, I would tend towards... That's a slightly strange question about the act of writing and the way in which writing and talking are two different functions of similar but fundamentally different communication forms. My absolute adoration of people who are super articulate, who can tell stories, who can speak to a microphone, who can talk to and engage the public, is boundless because I think oratory and rhetoric are so extraordinary and to marry that power with a conversational ease is one of the rarest and most wonderful of, of things. Like everybody, I sort of revere Alistair Cook for his ability to yes. tell stories in a way that he is literally peerless. I love how he bridges the Atlantic. Yeah, he bridges everything. I mean, literature and journalism. There are a couple of people I've come across in the last couple of years since my dear Christopher Hitchens died, who was yeah. 
the most articulate human being. Oh, yes. Yes, utterly magnetic and brilliant and resolutely uh, refusing on any single moment to accept any kind of orthodoxy. Couldn't yeah. see an orthodoxy without wanting to you know, <laughs> interrogate it. <laughs> Athel Hirsch has many of the same characteristics. She's a British and um, by heritage Ghanaian journalist and lawyer. Afua, A-F-U-A, Hirsch, H-I-R-S-C-A. She's becoming another one of those extraordinary voices that, you know, everybody just is riveted by and compelled by. And I think that's an amazing thing. And she's also funny and challenging, and I, I really like that. Um, so alongside you know, the, the writers, I would put the great talkers. And that's why people come to festivals. A lot of the time, yeah. I think they come for the crack, they come for the conversation, they come for the excitement of just reimagining the world. You know, mm. The world looks awfully familiar until you get to just kick it around a bit, and just hear from people whose expertise and sometimes an incredibly narrow and focused niche is extreme. They will tell you things that you didn't already know. And that's the that's the gold. That's the absolutely, you know, uh, unimpeachable value of conversation. You learn stuff and mm. you take pleasure in the learning. Mm -hmm. Well, Peter, thank you so much for this conversation. It's... Uh this is exactly why I do what I do for, for encounters like this. I really appreciate how, how generous you've been. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you very much for making it so easy. Okay. I've been speaking to Peter Florence, who is the founding director of the Hay Festival. I'm in Montreal, and he's in Hereford. Thanks again.